Jacob Routenbeek, CEO and founder of SailPlan. Welcome to the Epic Human Podcast. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. That's yeah. exciting. It's a joy to do this. Uh, we've been talking about potentially doing this for, I want to say like over a year. Um, but, uh, you know, so I'm, I'm excited that we're finally making it happen. Me too. Yeah. Me too. Um, so why don't you, why don't we start by just, you know, uh, a conversation around like what sale plan is um, and, 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 you know, so you, sort of how you founded the company. Sure. Um, there's a lot to unpack there. Uh, so let's start with sale plan. The sale plan is a real time, high resolution uh, monitoring system for ships that is, today is really focused on the combustion process and emissions. And what that means is we're able to actually directly sense the emissions coming from ship, uh, from ship's exhaust, um, helping them uh, voyage more efficiently, uh, understand what's happening in the engines, uh, identify ways to save fuel that was not you know, previously possible. Um, and it's really exciting technology that's been adopted now by dozens of ships. Um, so, so in a nutshell, that's what SailPlan is. And there's a lot to unpack there and how SailPlan works and, <laughs> and, and really what it, where it can go. But, um, you know, I, I started it because, you know, my dad was a marine electrician. Um, I grew up in South Florida and I had a love of the ocean. So from the, the time I was a little child, um, uh, I, my, one of my earliest memories was going to the docks with, uh, my father. I was like, maybe five or six years old. He had this big black conversion van with, you know, filled with tools. And he was building yachts for Broward Marine. Um, and uh, I remember going there one day and you know, having my little lunchbox sitting on the dock, looking at the yachts he was building. And I like, fell in love, like, Dad, you have the best job in the world. You know, he's like, he must've looked at me like, okay, kid. Um, but nonetheless, uh, I was hooked. Um, I, I remember standing there on the bridge of one of the yachts at, at, uh, as a young kid and just like, I want to do something with this world. Um, you know, fast forward when I was a little older, I, I became a scuba diver. Uh, when there was good surf in Florida, which there unfortunately isn't that great of a, a surf community uh, or surf scene, the, the community's great. Um, I'd be surfing out there. I'd be snorkeling, swimming um, like many other Florida kids. And um, I, I started to pay close attention to um, the, the environmental issues. Uh, I remember one uh, time I was on a reef cleanup and uh, I found a refrigerator on a reef. Yeah. And so I, I, was, I was like, well, how are we going to get that up? You know, but like the bigger question was like, I was like 10 years old, 11 years old. I was thinking, well, how does this get here? Right. Like, how do you get a refrigerator on a reef? Um, and, you know, and then, then you start looking at the other issues, right? Uh, the decimated fish population, the bleaching of the corals. Uh, today, the issue of plastics is ever present. A walk on the beach in South Florida um, you know, and uh, we always bring a small bag with us. Um, and you can't walk a hundred yards without filling up the bag with trash. And that's just a horrible state of, of the environment. If, if that's what's on the beach, what else is beyond what we can't see? Um, so it really, uh, for me, it was a, a call to do something um, with my life. Uh, and there was no better place to, to start than, than, you know, helping ships voyage more efficiently. So we're conserving energy and, and being better stewards of the environment. 
Wow. I remember when we were on the, the, the boat together a few weeks ago, um, you were you were picking up plastic and, you know, leaning over the ship and picking up plastic floating in the water. Did so. I do that? You did. Yeah. yeah. I actually, it's... Um, it's <laughs> you probably don't even notice no, you do it. <laughs> I don't notice. One time, uh, my, my son started yelling at me because we're going down the intercoastal waterway. And uh, I must have seen, I know I, I saw like a, a toilet paper packaging. Like it was just this huge piece of plastic sitting there. And so I just naturally like left the helm, walked through the back, pulled out a gaff and walked to the side. And my son's screaming, like, Dad, you let the wheel go. What's going on? And I, he's like, what are you doing? Um, and for me, it's just like, well, you got to get it out. Uh, yeah. Small. Well, um, this is a little bit uh, different than, a po- than any podcast I've done before in that <clears throat> we have some video that yes. we're going to show for that we're going to watch ourselves and show. Uh, to the audience, and it's going to help um, kind of explain sale plan, the product, and, and how it works. So, so why don't we uh, give it a shot here? Let's do it. Um, and thank you to the video production company that uh, that that helped put this together. Um, so, starting with some uh, <laughs> drone footage of Fort Lauderdale, and uh, it's a it's a great place to put our office. I I love this area that we're watching right now. <laughs> I, I like it, it's I see in the video it's actually a little stuttery um, I thought that was just on my iPhone <laughs> no and, and uh, it was funny is when they were doing the video uh, drone footage they lost the they yes. lost the drone for, for a little while so I'm glad they were able to recover it and uh, get some of the video but this is w- explain this what, what, what waterway is this that uh, we're, we're, we're showing this is the new river uh, in, in Fort Lauderdale. It's actually one of the natural rivers that has been there for you know millennia. Um, and uh, a lot of the um, original inhabitants of South Florida lived along the banks of this river, which is, which is kind of cool because there's so much man-made construction there that this is one of the natural parts of it. And where we're pulling up the vessel right here, the sail plan test vessel, um, uh, is actually right in front of our office. Which was uh, which was exciting. <laughs> so there you are showing up, and and why don't you tell us a little bit about the test vessel? So the test vessel, uh, her name's Maine Course. Um, she has a a long storied history up in Maine, where we where we were able to <laughs> we were able to find her. Um, she's a thirty five foot uh, Maine lobster boat that was uh, really built for family purposes. Is uh, a, a VC actually owned her? and um, used her every like two weeks a year uh, for uh, going around the islands in Maine and cruising. And then the rest of the year, for the past 20 years, she sat on the hard. And, and uh, so she's incredible condition, in incredible condition for a you know, 20-something-year-old boat, has less than 2,000 hours. And um, we were able to pick her up. She, she, believe it or not, she may look different, but under, under, the, under the hood, um, she's very similar to a, a large ship that we might actually put sail plan on. So she's a great um, R&D platform for sail plan uh, where we can deploy our technology on her. We can test and iterate with a live platform that's actually on the water that's under, you know, rather controlled circumstances. So um, she does, a, a, you know, research and development where we test new sensors, test new hardware. Um, it's great for us to do that. It's also great for customer experience. Um, investors can come out on the boat. Customers come out on the boat. Uh, we're able to see the technology firsthand. And I think the other thing about main course is you get a, a sense of the actual experience of sail plan and what it can do, much less on a smaller uh, footprint. 
but you can go see how vessels interact with one another, right? It's not just a, a boat on the water. There's hundreds of other boats near you, large and small, moving at different speeds and different rates. Um, you're in an ecosystem. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons that it's important to, to bring people out on her. And uh, we're looking at <clears throat> a few sensors kind of on the, the top of the boat and then some, some instruments inside. Can you give just some context um, as to you know, what we're looking at and what kind of, what kind of sensor uh, packages you have here? Yeah, so sail plan on board the main course uh, is almost one to win with the big ship. So we'll start from uh, the bottom and, and go up. Um, uh, we pull in high resolution data around the fuel system, the engine performance, and the actual em uh, measured emissions. So unpacking that, the, uh, the fuel system, we're monitoring fuel flow at a millisecond level, right? So we understand the minute changes in fuel flow um, uh, aboard the vessel, uh, just like we would on, on larger ships. Um, uh, then we're, we're pairing that, that fuel flow data with uh, engine data. So in the, she has a, you know, a, a simple diesel engine, but nonetheless, we're pulling in um, uh, uh, torque and RPMs uh, from that engine. So we actually have a, a shaft power meter on there where we understand the torque coming off the shaft. We have an RPM counter, so we understand uh, really how much uh, horsepower or, or kilowatts or power energy is coming out of there. Um, and then finally, you get to look at the emissions coming out of the, the main course. And that gives you a high resolution of understanding of actual direct measurements uh, in, in the fuel system. So you're, you're, together you're seeing what's going into the engine, what's coming out of the engine, and what's happening in there. Because there, you're gonna naturally ask questions of like, how well, you know, like, how do I save fuel? Well, but to, there's a question, you, you got two options on saving fuel on ships. You can burn less fuel, or you can also burn the fuel that you are combusting more efficiently, right? Um, and what SailPlan is really designed to do is answer both of those, identify strategies for you to, to burn less fuel, but then find ways that you're, um, you're improving your combustion efficiency. Um, fuel is simply uh, stored energy, right? Um, and so uh, how do we convert the maximum amount of that stored energy in a liquid form into a mechanical uh, energy at the output? And by measuring the exhaust uh, gas concentrations, we can really start to understand that in, in very high resolution. And then we, you know, aboard the main course uh, today, as, as you'll be able to see in some of these images, we're actually alerting the operators um, through the UI installed on the ship on to how to interact with those emissions and, and the fuel consumption information. Right. And, and the, the analogy I use for, for some people is <clears throat> to think about their, their own car, right, in terms of, um, you know, if you get a rating on like what your engine performance is, you know, 28 miles per gallon, right? That's rating a rating for highway driving at a very specific speed. Um, and they really design engines around that. So, so, you know, the way I describe what you guys do sometimes is you're, you're taking advantage of the kind of natural efficiencies that is designed into this equipment and, and allowing, um, you know, the operators of these vessels to, uh, to, to, you know, operate more efficiently in that way. There are. Uh, that's a good way of, of looking at sailplane. I think one of the things that most people underappreciate about ships is just how complex they are. Mm. Um, when you look at a, a car, you have a single engine. Um, 
you know, most of the ships out in, in the bay out here um, are, do not have single engines. Uh, they may have uh, one primary engine that's used to propel the ship, but sometimes two, sometimes four. Um, uh, they have uh, auxiliary generators um, that can be configured in many different ways. So it's not like you're just optimizing a single engine. You have to consider how you generate power um, uh, to provide sufficient power for all the different loads and consumers aboard the ship, right? You got to run air conditioning, you got to run pumps, you have to operate cranes, you have to drive the ship and generate power for propulsion. Um, you may have to generate water, uh, which is an important thing for, for ships, and they generate a lot of water on board. All this eats up power. The big question is, well, are you doing it efficiently? Um, how many engines are you using to generate that power? If you're, you know, what we look at is we say, if you're just measuring the inputs, then you're going to have a really hard time understanding the outputs. It's better to start with the outputs as well, right? Measure your outputs, measure out your inputs, and then measure how to, where the balance is on, on uh, that. We've had, you know, going back to, to ships, we've had a lot of success there because historically there's no HMI. There's no, there's no user interface on a ship to tell you how to do these things. Um, you might spend $100 million on a ship, but you still have no idea how much fuel you're consuming moment to moment. Uh, most people don't believe it, but ships often, like, you'll dip a stick into the fuel tank, uh, right, uh, to take the levels. Um, or you'll, you'll do a sounding of the tank, but oftentimes there's no fuel gauge even on board. So we're really starting from a very basic level with a very complex system, uh, and we're providing additional insights into um, how to operate more efficiently. And, and uh, t tell us about what you're, you're describing here in the video here on these, uh, these screens, because <clears throat> I remember uh, it, it'd be good to have additional context there for, for the audience. Yeah. So uh, aboard main course, we have a pretty much a one-to-one -one interface with the large ships, uh, just obviously scaled down for a single engine operation here. And, and what we're, we're talking about here is how um, we're looking at our fuel consumption. We're looking at our speed. Um, and doing some basic speed optimization. Uh, here, we're actually pulling up data from uh, other ships and showing you just how they compare to each other. So this is actually uh, some data from Port Fouchon, Louisiana, where we have um, ships operating right now. We also have terrestrial ground monitoring stations uh, pulling in air pollution uh, to help make air pollution actionable for ports. Um, but that's an important point because as you can see on the screen now, we're cruising by a cruise ship in Port Everglades, Florida, right? And the question is, if the port had to decarbonize, is, is it the ships that are the main generators of emissions in the port? Um, is it the cranes? Is it the, uh, the passenger traffic? Is it the car traffic? Um, is it the trucks coming in? Uh, there's a lot of contributors to uh, the emissions, and, and ships are just one of them, but it really is that ecosystem. Um, so by providing high-resolution data to the ships themselves, they get a, a solid independent understanding of how they're generating power, um, what emissions they're actually putting out into the atmosphere. And I'll, I'll, I'll dig into that for a minute because to date, the way that the process is done is um, they, they use fuel-based emissions factors. Do you know about those? Are you, are you familiar with factors? Ex explain that. So uh, fuel-based emissions factors aboard a ship, you measure your fuel consumption um, to the best of you can. I mean, if you're dropping a stick in the tank or a string, a plumb line in the tank and pulling it up, it's already going to be inaccurate. But then you use an emissions factor. You multiply your, uh, a un your units of fuel consumed. You know, I burned 10 tons today or 20 tons today by this emissions factor, which is a, a single number uh, that is theoretically 
designed to show um, how the carbon content stored in a unit of fuel, in a ton of fuel, converts to CO2. Um, and for instance, it's like 3.1 uh, is, is the standard emissions factor. And what that says is that it's an upper bound calculation. It assumes that all the potential carbon, potential energy was was combusted perfectly into a very special ratio of CO2 and nitrous oxides and everything else that comes out of there. Um, but the, the truth is that's an upper bound calculation. And what we find is that by directly measuring what's coming out of the exhaust, we're actually to get a much, able to get a much more precise uh, understanding. And, and as a result, precise is actually lower um, in almost every case, as a, as a, and so, which is a win-win, right? Um, we want to be more precise. We want shippers to be more precise. And as a result, uh, using this technology helps them lower their reportable CO2 uh, by about 5.5%. So. Wow. Um, <clears throat> I also wanted to uh, touch on <clears throat> something we discussed when we were out on the water in terms of the, the signals you can pick up when you're out on the water of, of other ships and like what, they, what they're already reporting and signaling out to, to the world. And uh, maybe you could just co comment on that piece. All ships share a, a signal called AIS, uh, the Automated Identification System. And uh, it's a lot like ADSB for airplanes, for anybody listening who might know anything about the aviation world. Um, it's a proactive system where the ship constantly sends out a broadcast signal to, to other ships nearby. And it says, hey, I'm here, here's my position. Um, here's how fast I'm traveling. Here's the direction I'm traveling. Um, but it also gives some rich data, right, about that actually is revealing. It talks about um, typically the draft of the ship, like how deep does it sit in the water? Um, how uh, uh, it, it actually can be used for uh, the name of the ship, right, and what it's carrying. Um, and through that, you can, uh, we're actually sucking up all that broadcast data from every single ship uh, equipped with SailPlan, which not only gives us information about SailPlan, but um, it gives you the context in which that ship's operating. Because if you look at the ecosystem approach, there's things inside your control, and then there's externalities, right? Well, there's a lot of ship traffic, so you're going to have to slow down. You're going to have to speed up to avoid that. Um, there's also weather information that might be, uh, you know, the Coast Guard's experimenting with adapting AIS for sharing weather information in real time. And so it's a rich data source that's publicly available, but really actually hard to access because it's locked in um, uh, the 25 nautical miles around a ship that we can see. Uh, but our ships actually, you know, suck in that information um, uh, through SailPlan and put it back onto the dashboard for operators. We're also using that for data mining purposes. Got it. And I'm glad you brought up <clears throat> uh, congestion and ship traffic and weather because I think sometimes, you know, when people think about you know operating engines more efficiently, they they think of like, oh, like you just kind of set it to to this, right? And it's and, but but in reality, there's all these kind of external variables that determine how you want to operate a vessel. Um, and so can, can you just expand on that? Like just to just to double click on the, the complexity of, you know, and how your your system kind of dynamically uh, adjusts to that. Yeah, I'll give you an example of one of the operators that we are, we're working with. That um, They have a vessel that runs, you know, four main engines and I think has three auxiliary generators on top of that. So this vessel is it's about 400, 450 feet long. Um, it uh, traditionally operates in the Gulf of Mexico. 
and um, it's about it's pretty modern as well. It has some of the most modern engines we've ever seen on board. Uh, it uh, when we got on board, I remember the superintendent of the vessel was saying like, "There's nothing to optimize here. We got it covered." <laughs> I was like, okay, cool, you know. And in some <laughs> ways, I, I remember seeing it was also our, our first vessel. I was like, oh man, this thing's sophisticated. I don't know if there's a lot left to optimize. Um, when you start looking at the way they operate the vessel though, operational capabilities, yeah, these engines are top of the line. Like they have everything they can do in an automated fashion to get, the, get them running at their optimum uh, uh, temperature, but there's only so much you can control. Then there's the human factors component. So with four engines and, and three generators, there's a lot to figure out on which engine should I be running? Which engines out of the four run most efficiently? Um, the assumption is that they run per exactly the same, but our data actually shows that they're wildly different. And that's because the operator really likes to un operate on engine two. Um, <laughs> and uh, engine two has the most number of hours, like four times the number of hours on it. So it's really an old engine compared to like engine one. And engine three is somewhere halfway in between there. And when you look at the emissions that come out of these engines, they're all different. Every single one of them is different. And you can look that they actually, uh, as the engine goes through its maintenance cycles, right? As it has uh, problems over time, the engines degrade, right? They, uh, and especially engines that are operated at suboptimal ranges, like really low loads. Like imagine idling your car and instead of ever taking it on the highway, you just let it sit there idling all day, 24 seven until you get it in the morning and then you drive to work for five minutes. Right? That engine's tearing itself apart. It's actually too cold. Um, so the seals don't fit properly. You have blow by, you have water and, uh, and uh, water vapors getting into your oils. It's just a horrible place for those engines to run. Now multiply that across four and these engines are on all day. Uh, just sitting there at very low loads. So, so that's one of the reasons we see this happen. Um, uh, multiplied by the excess hours there uh, that's put on some of the engines, and you end up with a different result. Each engine operates very differently in, in terms of its efficiency, its ability to convert that energy from the diesel to, uh, to mechanical energy and out the back. So that's the first big insight is, which engine should I even be operating on, right? That's a, not something that the crew instinctively knows. They just go off of gut feeling and instinct. But then you can go die, look, look a level deeper. Um, uh, if, you know, if I have to make 10 knots out to uh, my, my destination to get there on time, what's the optimal combination of engines that I need online in order to get there on time? Uh, we're not trying to optimize around speed. We're looking at pure uh, mathematical combustion efficiency. Um, should you do it with three engines? Like if I can make 10 knots with three engines, why do I need four? If I can make it with one engine, why do I need two or three online? And there's some good reasons to maybe have that safety. Maybe you have an engine problem, you need a backup online. But if you provide the cost of that operation in terms of your carbon output, um, and your carbon emissions back to the crew and the fuel consumption, then you have other layers to pull back. Should I operate those two engines? If I have to have one on standby, should I both operate them at like 50% load, like sort of idling my car? Or should I rev one up as high as it go to like, you know, 70, 80% load and put a lot of pressure and heat in there and then back the other one off to 10%? What's the optimal strategy there? Um, what SailPlan helps them do is see the actual effect of that in very real detail and through a series of alarms and insights, 
recommend different strategies to the operators. In fact, what we found is by taking um, some of these engines offline, uh, the, the ships, the, well, I'll start here. The ships were actually generating a lot more power than they needed in many cases. Um, and when you dove into it, um, it's just because that's the way they've always done it, right? Well, we always have two engines online, plus some backup generators. Why? Well, because, and um, no one's ever asked. So now that you start getting the data, you can say, well, the cost of two engines online versus one, when you only need one, um, it can save you 50% of fuel. And like, here's the data. Now, interestingly enough, since you're burning that fuel more efficiently by dropping down to one engine, you get a, about a 50% fuel reduction in this case, the case study we did. We only get about a 27% CO2 reduction, you know, 37% nitrous oxide reduction. And that's because your fuel is burning much more effectively, right? You're converting more of the potential energy to power instead of converting it to things like unburnt hydrocarbons, which are really nasty. Um, we measure all of that, right? We're measuring CO2, we're measuring uh, sulfur oxides, uh, nitrous oxides, uh, unburnt hydrocarbons, water content in the engines, particulate matter concentrations, and we have up to 36 different gases beyond that that we can measure. So we really are a, a breathalyzer for performance uh, and understanding for the crews. This is the part to me that's <clears throat> so fascinating and, and I think a little bit counterintuitive that you rev the engine harder it burns less uh, fuel and emissions come down. It's like a clear win-win. Let me ask you this. The, the fuel reduction is like a clear ROI, you know, no-brainer for the, for the customer. What have you found in terms of, you know, how much people actually care about the, the emissions reduction as well? <clears throat> emissions reduction, when we started the company, was probably a top three care about for our ship operators. Uh, and I was excited because I was like, ah, for the first time in, you know, in history, people care about emissions. Um, today, it is the singular issue facing these companies. Um, it is typically managed directly by the CEO or CFO. Um, it is uh, a top issue. And in, in some cases, the emissions footprint for shipping is existential. It's now an existential crisis for many ship operators. Um, things like the carbon intensity indicator uh, which came into force uh, on January 1st this year, is an example of that. It, it gives a letter grade to every ship in the world. Um, and realistically, they're going to have to slow down. The majority of ships in the world are going to have to slow down by about 5% next year. Um, and then 2% thereafter for the next five years after that. So, so ship operators are taking this seriously because they can't afford to slow down. So the other alternative there is started investing in technologies to be more efficient, right? Um, and it, it's looking at the amount of carbon you generate. Um, so, so for instance, you could equip your ship with sails. Uh, I, I used to think that was a joke. Um, like, oh, we're going to connect, you know, we have a, a massive container ship. We're going to put sails on it. But no, this is a serious uh, consideration now that can they can decrease um, uh, increase your voyaging efficiency for a cost of several million dollars per ship. Uh, you can put Flettner rotors, these spinning rotors, on to generate electricity. You can add batteries to ships today. You can look at lower carbon fuels. Um, this is the way forward for shipping, but it's just the start because right after the CII went into force on January first, um, shippers are now facing direct carbon taxation coming out of the EU. Um, it's the first large-scale carbon taxation scheme in the world to be applied to shipping. 
Um, ships have paid nitrous oxide taxes in Europe to the no uh, to Norway uh, and the NOx fund for years, uh, but it was never broad scale. Now, in any EU waters, uh, starting later this year, October of this year, ships are going to be buying off buying allowances at at least you know at market prices. Today, that's seventy five dollars a ton uh, for for an allowance. Uh, that's going to cost ships upwards of eleven thousand dollars per day in some cases in carbon offsets uh, that they're going to have to have to purchase. So it is uh, it is existential and it's right there at the top for shippers today. They take it wow. very seriously. Wow. Um, and that's and that's brand new, right? That was signed just at the end of last year. Shipping <clears throat> was included in the ETS, the exchange traded system, which is the, the cap and trade system we just talked about um, on December sixteenth. So shippers have had almost no time to prepare. In fact, uh, I was at a conference um, maybe early fall uh, where ETS came up and everybody thought the, you know, the uh, EU was going to do a head fake on this and be like, yeah, psych, uh, we're, we're going to kick it down the road. And they didn't. Um, so now people are scrambling. People are, are afraid in the industry right now. Wow. Wow. Um, I'm going to I'm going to put this back on um, because this goes through th this next video goes through. Um, your in-office, some of your in-office equipment and some of your employees. Sure. Um, <clears throat> but maybe like while we do this, you can explain a little bit around some of the uh, foundational technologies that have evolved just in the past five, you know, 10 years or so that, that make this possible. Because like a lot of people, when they, you know, see any sort of new startup, they say like, well, why, why wasn't this existing before? Right, and so maybe you could you help shed some light on that. Let, let's start with um, the cost of bandwidth. Right? Sure. So the the cost of bandwidth have plummeted. Um, we we could take a whole history lesson and and understand why captains have uh, ultimate authority on board a ship because there was nobody to talk to when you're at sea with no way of communicating. All the way to Marconi and you know, with the radio and the first real time reports, real time being like once and twice a day, noon reports and midnight reports. Um, today those are emailed, but today the standard is you know um, uh, once a day uh, ships would broadcast information to their home offices about their position how much fuel is being consumed etc um, provisions on board but the cost of bandwidth in the past several years has just plummeted um, the likes of Starlink uh, are really not even felt just yet in the industry so they're going to go down even further uh, but if we tried starting sail plan five years ago we would have been too early uh, there was no macro wind tailwind pushing on this there was no why do people care? Because they didn't. Um, uh, and it was cost prohibitive to do anything about it. Um, so the historical footing for the industry was to keep all the data on the ship and written records or on computers and email it off as they needed to, typically in batch files. Um, so what we, the, the, I think the first big enabling technology for SailPlan is, is communications at sea. It's not just here, though. It's, it's driving a revolution in digitalization of the fleet. Um, you know, People joke that shipping will never buy software. Um, well, I think that was true because there was no way of really using software to its potential if there was no way to communicate. But um, now that we can see cloud applications you know, penetrating the ocean environment, I think that it's ripe for that type of uh, technology. I think shippers are interested in software just like every other business in the world. You know, I think some of the other enabling technologies here that we look at, um, uh, on ships, you have to deal with so many different types of standards, right? Um, serial data, uh, what else? CAN bus, Modbus, 
um, you get uh, non-self-describing data sets. Um, so they're data that just flows over that doesn't tell you what they are. You have the more modern you know, TCP IP connections to date. You have uh, uh, four to 20 milliamp interfaces, which you have to, are really analog signals where we have to read the power coming off of the signal. Um, and all of these are, are locked in different proprietary data standards in many cases with different wrappers over them, making them really just hard to parse out. So one of the first things we did is, is make this as simple as possible to integrate with. Um, we actually built our own boards, as you can see in that, that show, that, um, that clip which allow the easy integration of a lot of these different signals. Because on, on a ship, you never know what you're going to get. Um, we've seen engines that are over 50 years old, um, which don't have any meaningful data coming off of them. And we've seen ships that were built last year uh, with the most advanced data, you know, networks and, and high-resolution data. And Sailplane's been designed to through our boards to ingest all of those, uh, work with all of those engines seamlessly. Uh, so that's a little bit about what you're seeing here. I think one of the other innovations that we did, and you can see as we open up this uh, the box and with the different colors there, those actually line up to, um, if you splice an ethernet cable, um, it makes it really simple for ship operators to install without having to go into the really, you know, the special um, componentry of, of sail plan. Look, you're, you're dealing with a harsh marine environment. It can be raining, it's, you know, 100 mile an hour winds at sea. Um, you don't want people opening uh, these equipment cabinets up and poking around inside them. Um, it's not good for sailplane, it's not good for the ship, and it's not good for these components to be exposed. So we've actually built this little compartment that allows ship operators to install this as easily as splicing a, an ethernet cable and connecting the colors up. Uh, makes it really easy to work with. Right, and, and ships, as I understand, <clears throat> have their own engineers. And so, and so this is built for them to effectively install and maintain themselves. Correct. Right? Correct. Right. That's correct. And uh, may maybe, uh, you know, we're seeing uh, Captain Jennifer Norwood, if, I, if I'm saying her name correctly. Maybe you could just talk a bit about her and uh, her role at the company. Captain Jennifer Norwood has a, a real um, legacy in the industry. Uh, she's incredibly well known. She uh, was one of the first uh, female captains at Maersk. Um, uh, recently, she was actually honored at uh, Maersk uh, uh, she was invited over to Europe and, and featured in a coffee table volume as like some of the pioneers in her industry. Um, uh, because if you think about what female captains have had to go through historically, it's a, it's an, uh, it's challenges that you, probably you and I don't appreciate. Um, and, and she paved the way for people behind her to do that. Nonetheless, um, she's a leading voice on autonomy and really the future of mariners. Um, and uh, that's how we connected. She was a uh, teaching at Maine Maritime Academy, one of our partners today. And I connected with Jennifer uh, and we, we hit it off instantly. She uh, was interested in shoreside operations and the ability of high resolution real-time data to actually, uh, you know, uh, help mariners eventually transition ashore with the future of uh, autonomous technologies um, autonomous vessel operations, you know, it's one thing to allow a ship to go out there on its own, but we're always going to have a crew in some form, especially for large ships. Uh, but a lot of these sh positions can move shoreside 
as long as we have the right data to support them. So SailPlan and Jennifer had a lot to do because under the hood of SailPlan is a high resolution real-time data platform. Today, it's very focused around towing into the market through emissions and fuel consumption, saving operators money while saving the climate because of reduced air pollution. Yet, that's just a small inkling of the capabilities that we're delivering to these ships. We're going from emissions to a diagnostics. Um, we've built real-time high resolution data feeds, uh, including uh, video. I remember one of our operators, well, what do you need video for? Why do you put, and, and so the answer for video, going back to Jennifer Norwood is, to date, um, some of the engineering students are taught to uh, test whether you know uh, bearings are failing by touching uh, some of the componentry in there. It's not something that'll show up as a signal on your, you know, the engine heat temperature because that measures your fluid, your coolant temperature. So if you know if a bearing's failing, you have to feel for vibrations and heat coming off certain parts of the engine. That's dangerous, right? <laughs> well, how do we know if it's hot? Well, touch it. Right, touch it with your bare hand. <laughs> so we can actually map uh, using thermal <clears throat> cameras the heat signatures coming off of there. And you can have somebody in a shoreside control center wearing, you know, a glove or just looking at the color scheme and identifying, hey, is that actually failing? Is it is it overly hot? SailPlan has the ability to provide that to shoreside data to look at that from a safe distance, um, enabling these crews to start getting off the vessels, working remotely. And that's really what Jennifer's kind of expertise is in shoreside control. So she joined SailPlan a little over a year ago. She came on uh, ahead of our, our Series A. And um, uh, we're really glad to have her. She leads our customer success team. So she takes all the hard things about installing SailPlan on a ship the first time we ever did it um, to making it into a very simple process that customers can do themselves uh, with some SailPlan help on the side to make sure they're getting it right. And um, that kind of ties to a question I had around like, what is your long-term vision for, for SailPlan, what it becomes? It's a great question. Um, you know, if you accept the fact that ESG isn't going anywhere, right? Um, that that this has been a slow roll for many years and decades building a movement towards um, a cleaner environment, uh, more sustainable operations. Um, we see incredible pressure on the shipping industry today. We solve these micro problems by saving operators money. And we also saw we have macro tailwinds at our back with a direct taxation, finally pushing people to adopt these technologies that can be better for all of us. Um, but maritime's just the toe into the water. It's just our initial market. You know, you, our technology stack is built for planes, trains, automobiles, mining, ag, uh, airports, terminals, and you name it, everything and above. Um, while we're monitoring a combustion engine, we're also monitoring the power. So we're well positioned for the future as we do decarbonize operations, whether it goes to hydrogen, whether it goes to ammonia, whether it goes to fully electrified you know, uh, operations through batteries. SailPlan is well positioned to go into that future and be the diagnostic and real-time data backbone for the ships, but also for the cars and the other types of transportation modes that are going to rely on this, this, uh, uh, these technologies. Exciting. Um, and I know you're, you're also doing some work with the Coast Guard and, and, the, and uh, the U.S. military. Can you, I, I know some of it's probably confidential, but maybe you could give us just a little insight as to why they, they want to work with you. Yeah. Um, you know, the, I'll start with the Coast Guard. The Coast Guard's really leaning forward into smart buoy technology. 
there's almost 50,000 state-owned <clears throat> or, or uh, you know, federal-owned um, aids to navigation in the U.S. waterways, and there's probably over 3 million globally. Um, these are fixed assets that are, tend to be pretty dumb. Um, they're sitting out there, and they're, they have a lot to say, uh, but they're not very smart. Let's put it like that. They, uh, and what I mean by that is that the buoys are put there to tell mariners something. Um, there's a hazard. There's uh, a channel boundary, um, a place you have to turn. Um, so they're designed to communicate, but today they typically do that either through lights, they're painted, I mean, for, through colors, they're painted red or green or orange or white, or they're, um, they have buoys or gongs today to communicate audibly. Um, and uh, nonetheless, none, uh, when sail planning, in fact, a total of zero were uh, smart enabled. So there was no data streaming off these. They only had one way to communicate. And so SailPlan um, took some of our uh, technology that would be on the bridge of the ship and we uh, adapted it with some solar panels and we stuck it on a few of the buoys in the Chesapeake Bay uh, to see whether we could give the buoys a digital presence. And, uh, and it's worked great. So what it does is allows the buoy to now communicate through data instead of just through analog you know, paint schemes uh, and sounds and uh, then it can communicate directly with mariners nearby. It can tell the Coast Guard that it's in the same position that it needs to be, and it hasn't been dragged out of position or struck by a vessel and sunk. Um, you wouldn't believe that that's a problem, but the U.S. Coast Guard spends tens of millions of dollars every year dragging buoys back into the right place because they've been swept out to sea. Um, and then when they're swept out to sea, people are like, where did it come from? <laughs> It, you know, <laughs> where's, where's uh, my buoy? Dude, right. Where's my buoy? Where, where's my buoy? And, <laughs> and if you, you know, if you haven't been on the water, buoys are large. Uh, the buoys we're typically on are over 20 feet tall. So um, you, you only see a small portion on the surface, but they go way down. So when they break free and they fly around, they cause dangers. They go from something in, in designed to make waterways travel safer into actually the, the hazard on the water. Um, and so... Uh, we're picking up great information off the buoys, uh, not only telling the Coast Guard it's in the right spot, but telling the mariners and the pilots on board the ships passing through those channels, whether there's wind gusts coming down in real time, um, what the water temperature and currents look like. We're actually able to um, use our uh, passive emissions monitoring to detect the, you know, the pollution levels uh, throughout the channels. So it's pretty exciting technology for the Coast Guard. Excellent. Um, I want to I want to get back to you a little bit. Um, you talked about growing up in Florida. Um, <laughs> talked a little bit about your grandfather. I mean, what what? How would you kind of classify like the way you grew up and 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 how it impacted you? You know, I, I loved growing up in Florida as a kid. There's in my mind, maybe everybody says this, like there was no better place to grow up. Um, you know, it was, it was open. I remember there was times that I was bored out of my mind, but I think boredom creates, you know, uh, imagination and lets you, um, kind of do things. My grandfather was an entrepreneur. Um, uh, he, you know, he, uh, created a, a, a set of nurseries, um, plant nurseries, uh, down in South Florida. He ended up, uh, uh, being in the agriculture for the industry for many years. Um, but I loved it. My I go back to my roots, though, with my father on the water. Uh, that was my passion. I remember I'm still sort of this way. Uh, you know, I, re I just 
moved back to Florida after 15 years away. And still every day I'm like, can I go to the beach? <laughs> um, I, I have this natural draw towards the water. If I'm not near the water and I don't see water or touch water uh, for some period of time, I, you know, I get mopey. Um, but being near it is just, um, it's refreshing. It, it's kind of, um, it's part of me. And I think that goes back to being a kid. When I was young, I just want to be around the water, like whatever it was. It doesn't have to be the beach laying out with like getting a tan, but it, just being physically close to the water and the waterways. Uh, one of the first big projects that I did as a kid was we, around 2000, we helped um, electrify some of the first water taxis in the United States. They actually were in um, in Fort Lauderdale and, and they're still operating today. <laughs> I uh, My father passed away a couple of years ago um, and being back, I saw them, uh, the, the water buses down there. And I saw one of the ones that we first built together. And I was like, that's really cool. And it's like <laughs> such a, um, so it's like a, a neat, like I remember standing in that boat and he like shocked himself. I'm like, <laughs> but um, nonetheless, you know, it was, it was uh, I think living down there was partly the inspiration for why I wanted to move back and why I wanted a headquarter sail plant down there. Do you, do you think Florida gets a bad rap? <laughs> I mean, the whole Florida man thing and everything. In some ways, it deserves it. <laughs> okay. Uh, no, I mean, there are there are questionable, like, Florida man is a thing. Yeah. Nonetheless, <laughs> I do think it gets a bad rap. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think especially, you know, I, I get one of two responses when I move to Florida. Um, uh, I get people cheering me on like, yes, uh, <laughs> go DeSantis. <laughs> um, and then on the other side of the fence, I get the, Oh, right. And it was like, I mean, it's that. It's like a... Right. Oh. <laughs> okay. Right. Like, and it was like, there's this, there's this political thing with Florida. Like you yeah. moved because, and like, I'm going to judge you because you moved down there. And I'm like, I don't know about that. Like, maybe it's just a great place to live. Yeah. It has its problems like everywhere. Right. You know, um, I, I'm not going to say it's, it's roses. What I find is it's incredibly diverse. Mm-hmm. Um, I find that having lived in uh, in L.A., which is also incredibly diverse, uh, in Northern Virginia, um, it feels diverse there mm-hmm. in a good way. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I mean, uh, especially with the the Caribbean, um, uh, you know, um, uh, lots of Latin American influence um, uh, people. Um, I I love the community that it has as a result of that. Um, it people people live together. People are happy together. So I, I do think, in a sense. Florida gets a bad rap because that side of Florida isn't always shown. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the Florida that I have. Um, I, and I'm sure, you know, with every place, there's two sides of the same coin. So I'm sure there's other pieces of Florida that that obviously, you know, Florida man is part <laughs> of that. But uh, I, I think Florida gets a bad rap. Yeah. I, I was in Miami uh, not too long ago, and I walked into a, a, re- a cafe and tried to order something. They were like, uh, we don't speak English. <laughs> like, yeah. And I was like, ooh, I kind of like this, actually. Like, I don't, you know, this doesn't happen to me too often. It doesn't. <laughs> it, it's weird that you can live in the United States and go to a place where people just don't speak English. Yeah. Um, when I was a kid, so I, ref- you know, looking at growing up there, um, I didn't speak any Spanish. I, I speak just a few words now. I learned French, and um, I felt like it, I was like, oh, gosh, everybody speaks Spanish here. I got so annoyed about it. But actually, I think I was, I wasn't in the right headspace. Actually, it's an opportunity 
to like engage with these other cultures and then looking, I'm like kicking myself. Um, I'm like, yeah, French is great, but I should have learned Spanish because they bring so much to the community, right? Mm -hmm. So much, um, especially the Cuban population, um, deep entrepreneurship roots, right? So many founders come out of the community, Cuban community. Look into South Florida, um, and it's not just the Cubans, it's the Venezuelans, right? Um, uh, I'm, I'm seeing, uh, yeah, someone's gonna be like, why don't you mention Brazil? Uh, why don't you mention Jamaica? I'm not, not doing that, but it, overall, I think it's a huge plus to our community, even though there's those challenges when you walk into a cafe and you're like, okay, huh? I uh, yeah. no speak English, but- I like um, it, I like it. It's okay. T tell us about um, some of your your early career. Um, you know, you were, you did some work at the Air Force, uh, Talus, and Raytheon. Like, why did you decide to kind of go into that field, and, and how does that translate to you know some of the work you're doing, and, and and how you ended up at AirMap? I'd love to hear a little bit more of that story. Yeah, we. Um, so when I was growing up, my mom um, had said, uh, "You have three choices. Uh, you can be a doctor." a lawyer or an accountant. And I said, huh, I don't like any of them. <laughs> I, you know, doctors, I think, do great things, but um, I think they, they solve problems on small scales. Like they solve your problem. Uh, hopefully they do a good job of it. That's great. I love doctors, but um, uh, so no doctors. Um, on the other hand, accountants count other people's money. And I didn't think that sounded so fun. So uh, I said, you know, this lawyer thing might be a good opportunity to go figure out um, something. So went to law school uh, in South Florida. I practiced for a day, a day. Um, <laughs> it was the worst experience of my life. It was awful. <laughs> it was a very expensive lesson. Um, yeah. Uh, and <laughs> nonetheless, I was like, oh, this is a mistake. <laughs> Um, Wait a second, I didn't even know this. That's so funny. I, I should have seen it coming because in law school, everybody else went out for clerkships and um, I, I became a lifeguard for the summer and I was like, I can't do this. <laughs> and everyone's like, are you going to take this seriously? I was like, number one, it's easy. Mm -hmm. Like, like you guys are making a big deal about this. Number two, it's wildly boring. Um, and, but rarely what it was is I didn't, I felt like the legal industry at the time wasn't, uh, maybe maybe still is, um, wasn't really solving people's problems. Um, when I worked at the firm, I found that we weren't solving anybody's problems. We were just kind of billing and wasting time and billing for time seemed awful. I'm like, I want to free up my time, not spend it you know, on the clock. So um, I ended up, I needed a change of scenery and change of pace. I moved out to LA. Uh, I went to Pepperdine, I got an MBA. And um, what I found is that I love the intersectionality of like tech and things like tech and law, um, tech and policy, um, the uh, ability to <clears throat> do things with meaning, uh, which is a big part of my life coming out of, you know, wanting to um, help the, the oceans uh, when I was younger. And so out of uh, Pepperdine, I graduated right into the housing, housing, crisis, housing crisis. And um, the Air Force was the only one hiring. I thought, gosh, man, this is like two strikes. My life is over. I'm like, this is not good. Um, well, when I did that, I, I took a job with the Air Force at LA Air Force Base, uh, the Space and Missile System Center. And I'm telling you, I got the, it was a dream job. It was some of the coolest things in the world. Uh, I was working in the office of Space Launch there. Uh, it was then called EELV, Evolved Expendable Launch Vehicles, when um, Elon Musk came through the office and had sued the office I was working with. Um, and I remember being like, isn't that like the Tesla guy? 
like I hadn't even heard of SpaceX at the time. Um, and uh, they were the laughing, laughing stock of the office. Like everyone's like, oh, what are you gonna do? Strap nine engines onto a rocket and launch it? Um, you're never gonna get anywhere. And I remember his point was that um, it, it, back in the day, he said, uh, yeah, they, well, the Air Force had said, sorry, Elon had said to the Air Force, you know, NASA told me I can launch astronauts and um, the Air Force told me I can't launch satellites, right? So who has their priorities in the wrong order? Um, people or satellites? And, and the Air Force said NASA has them in the wrong order, right? Because our satellites are, you know, they cost $20 billion, take 30 years. They're, they're in many cases irreplaceable. So um, what I did was I helped write the acquisition strategy in that role, uh, to help onboard SpaceX and, and help them start launching rockets for the Air Force. Um, that was a really exciting project. It was like, how do you, how do you take this asset, um, you know, GPS satellite or so on, uh, communication satellite, and give it to a company that is still learning to like build that credibility with you? Um, and so we developed an on-ramp program for them to kind of grow and, and mature. And as they kind of hit different milestones, just as you might look as like a, an investor, they got more to go on. Um, and so uh, in the early days, they were allowed to launch like really old, you know, GPS Block 2 satellites. And then they kind of progressed through the, through the as long as they, they didn't blow anything up or lose them or put them in the wrong orbit, uh, they kind of graduated to the next steps. And I mean, I think they've blown everybody's expectations away. Um, uh, certainly there. So that was a really exciting start to my career. Um, I fell in love with emerging tech really at that point and, uh, and sort of parlayed that forward over the next decade. I left uh, working for the government. I went to work with a great, great company like Raytheon. I loved working at Raytheon. Great time. Um, at Raytheon, I was working mostly in the Middle East um, during uh, mostly semi-classified work that we won't overly sure. go into here. Uh, but nonetheless, I was, I was around the outside edges of emerging tech uh, and recently declassified technology that we could sell and work with our Middle East partners on, um, eventually coming in to work at Talus and AirMap. And, and that's where I got involved in the, at the aviation industry. Um, I'd been working in, in uh, you know, a policy role uh, out at Talus and, uh, uh, and helping open up the airspace for drones. And enabling things like unmanned traffic management, which gives the promise of large-scale drone delivery, and it's an enabling technology for drones. Uh, when I went to work with AirMap, uh, Greg McNeil is one of the co-founders of AirMap, super guy, uh, just an amazing person. Um, and uh, he really brought me over to AirMap. I, I sort of nagged. I, uh, I'll tell you a short story. I, I. Um, uh, Greg's a very outspoken person, and um, I love that about him. You know, he's not afraid to speak his mind. And, uh, you know, I remember uh, following him in the drone industry, certainly, and then and finding the opportunity to get an introduction to him. And, like, next thing you know, I get to work for him at AirMap and uh, spent two years working there um, and before starting SailPlan. And so that was a bit about my career journey, uh, it kind of started in starting in the space program, eventually moving through through drones and and back to where I really care about, you know, my heart's in the ocean, uh, my, my passions for the sea. So kind of it's nice to come full circle, be back in Florida, be back where um, I'm making an impact in the most, you know, most important, one of the most important environments in my mind.
Yeah. And well, so first off, shout out to Greg. Uh, he's been on this podcast. Has he? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, by, by the way, in, in one of our first or second years, um, he's a longtime friend of mine. He introduced us. Yeah. So shout out to, and he's, and he's the, your co-founder and chairman, yes. co-founding chairman of, of SailMount, <clears throat> SailPlan. And, um, but it, you know, it is interesting how your careers come full circle and, you know, the, the skills and experiences you've come along the way are, you know, have sort of made you uniquely capable to, to start this company around policy, uh, technology, uh, security, like how all these things fit together. <clears throat> it's, uh, you know, it's, 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 I love these stories because it's like, you can't, you can't map it out on paper in terms of like, okay, this is how I'm going to, you know, architect my career. Like you said, Air Force was the only one who was hiring. Yeah. Then all of a sudden you're, you're meeting and interacting with Elon Musk and, and uh, SpaceX. Like you, you can't, you can't plan these things. You can't. And you know, there's this, um, I listen to country music. There's this old song, God bless the broken road mm -hmm. uh, that led me straight to you. And, and, and I really do pinch myself. I'm, I'm so lucky to look back and I can see this path. And I'm like, somebody had a plan um, because I'm in exactly the right spot at the right time with the right skill set and the right background to go be able to solve this problem. And it really is a greenfield, you know, we call it blue water problem. Um, when we started creating SailPlan, um, uh, people were like, this isn't a problem. I'm like, no, it is. Like, how do you know how to work with it? Like, well, by chance, I happened to build boats as a kid. And it turns, um, so it, it's really an apt uh, broken road story here that's, uh, that's true. All right, I want to I want to turn to your personal philosophy here. This is a new question, so okay. I'm gonna caveat it that this is this is a weird one. Okay. Okay. But I'm I'm gonna give it a shot. Okay. So, <laughs> if you think about the long arc of history, yeah. Okay. Each of us humans are effectively like an insignificant like little data point, right? Are we? Well, think of, well, look, hear my argument right. and, then, and then react to it. Even U.S. presidents, right? Like, I don't know if you could name the 12th U.S. president, but it's Zachary Taylor. Okay. Okay. Um, war hero, in his time, the most important person in the country, if not one, one in the world, right? Okay. But most, of, most people on the street, you ask them who's Zachary Taylor, they have no idea, right? So in the long arc of history, you know, millions and millions of years, in a sense, like all of us will be, you know, forgotten or lost to history. So knowing that um, and having one life to live, like how do you think about, um, you know, finding meaning in your life and like the impact that you could have? Hmm. <laughs> so I like that. You put me on my back foot and, and your, your premise is you're not very meaningful. Because over time, even if you were the president of the United States, much less the 12th president, no one's going to remember you. But how do you see yourself making an impact? Now, I like that. That was good framing. Um, you know, I, I am perpetually optimistic. Let's go back to that. So um, what drives me is really the core of that question in my mind. Like, And, and for me... Um, I'm optimistic that we can make changes in our lifetime and for that of my children and, and your children and their children's children, then if we're just myopically focused on the, the impact that we can make today and here or in our life cycle, um, then we're going to miss the big picture changes, right? And 
And so why I tie that back to, to this question is because what I believe is that some of the changes we're making today uh, in society, in, um, in the world, in the climate space are going to have these ripple effects. Right? Um, we're, we're, you know, to go back to ships, we're steering the ship just a little bit today so that we can make an impact. I actually don't believe it's for our generation. I think it's for the next generations to come. Um, and if we don't take these hard steps today, what's it gonna be like 100 years from now? Um, and so if you're looking at impact and what drives me, one is I'm optimistic that we're doing the right things today. It may feel like we're not going fast enough, but I think we're, we don't need to go much faster. We're, we're, doing, we're taking the right steps. Um, and two, I think the impact is going to be felt by generations past us who said, huh, well, they, you know, they, they bit the bullet. They, took, they made some hard decisions there. That was a rough period in the world, uh, you know, 2022, 2020, 2020, 2021, 2022, and probably the next decade is going to be really rough. Um, and, I, and I think that that's how we have to review. Like, that's the lens that I see impact through. Um, it's not just us. It's it's multi generational, yeah. And the the uh, shipping metaphor is is apt, right? Because even a tiny tweak might not look like anything now, but in the long term, that could be hundreds, thousands of miles of a difference. That's exactly right. Is there a quote um, that you think about sometimes in times of struggle or frustration? Or there are many. Um... You know the the simplest uh, quote is um, is 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 uh, gosh what's that actor's name and I forgot his name right now. Um, anyways, it's it will be okay. <laughs> it will be okay. Uh, sometimes you you know like as a founder um, or maybe you, you know you're founding a fund, so you probably go through the same thing. But at least on my side. You know, there's the pucker factor followed by the relief, followed by another pucker factor. And, um, you know, it's up and down and, and sometimes you get kicked down and then you get lifted up and, and pulled sideways all in a day. Um, and so sometimes I just have to step back and say, like, it'll be OK. And that's like that's one of the big guiding quotes um, I think of is it's, it's maybe it's not that magnanimous, but it, <laughs> it's calming and it's reassuring that. There's a signal and there's noise. And, and if you look back to that broken road that got us here in the first place, it's all worked out um, and, uh, and it will be okay. My grandma used to say, uh, it'll all come out in the wash. Yeah. And, and it's like, just like that little simple phrase, like it's the same kind of thing. It's, um, it can be powerful. Um, this is my pet favorite question. Um, what What's uh, your most contrarian opinion? That Florida is a great place to live. <laughs> You've already made that case pretty well. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I think fair enough. It's it's fairly contrarian these days um, to, to like Florida. That uh, is pretty contrarian. It actually. is, <laughs> especially here in California. Yeah. It's like, it's like I was going to wear my Florida hat on the plane <laughs> and, uh, and get kicked off. But, uh, you know, I think I think that's probably that's probably uh, you know an, an apt contrarian opinion these days. Um, you know, I, I think other things are um, if we, if we look in the climate space directly, I'll I'll tackle that for a minute. I think the 
it would be contrarian to say that I don't think oil and gas is going anywhere for the next hundred years. Um, I know it's maybe not what we like to hear, but if you look at the facts, oil has um, done really good things for the world. Um, you, you might get your podcast banned that I said that now. <laughs> um, look, pre-oil, we were killing whales to, bur- to burn their fat in candles, right? We needed oil, so we had to get it from non um, non-petroleum-based sources in the, in the ground. Um, so really, when the oil and gas industry started, it, it ended the whaling industry. Um, and so like we forget that, and that was like a, a silver lining. Um, I think that we needed oil to come on and we need to get off of it, but I think that we misunderstand just how hard and uh, how, one, one, how fundamental oil and gas is to the operation of the world. It doesn't just power transportation. It's in um, medical devices. It's in our food, right? It's in everything we do. Um, so what I think is maybe a smarter answer is try to decarbonize and remove oil as as, easy, as quickly as possible from the transportation side and be really smart about what's replacing it because simply replacing it or simply shifting scope one emissions that are burning oil to scope two, which are burning oil, may look like we did a whole lot, but maybe we didn't. Maybe we we did something worse. Uh, um, but uh, so I, I think the smarter answer there, and maybe the contrarian answer is, um, do that really fast, but make sure that we have enough oil around for those applications that absolutely need oil in the future. And it is a non-recurring natural resource. We've got to remember it's a resource. It's not a, a curse on the world that we have oil. Um, we do need it for things. So I, I think I think those are some of the key things there that maybe are contrarian these days to say. Can you describe what you mean by scope one and two and maybe three emissions? Yeah. Um, people may not know what that, that I, means. I would argue that the <clears throat> definitions are still fairly fuzzy. Okay. Um, uh, I, I don't think the world has fully settled on, especially what scope three are. But let's start with scope one emissions uh, are the emissions that I generate in my line of business. Um, so... Uh, uh, if I'm um, operating uh, a vessel um, in, in our world and I'm um, burning fuel, I'm um, emitting uh, emissions from the, the burning of that fuel, I'm also doing a bunch of other activities uh, in my business. Well, those all generate emissions. Those are all scope one. They're primarily generated by me. So if you think about this in the context of a consumer or their car, they turn on their car that's burning you know, fossil fuels, it's generating emissions right there on the spot. That's a scope one emission um, for the person. Um, removing that to scope two is a, um, is a uh, emissions generated from support activities, right? You're not the primary source of the em- emitter. You're now getting those emissions uh, from a secondary source. So um, now when you electrify your car, you're taking your, you're not generating the emission directly. You're letting somebody else do this, but you're contracting for those emissions, right? So uh, now a power plant is generating those emissions. Those become scope two emissions. Uh, to you. Um, scope three are really hard to understand um, and and some argument around what they are. Um, my take on them, uh, which is probably going to be argued uh, by 25 other people, is that they, um, they're emissions that occur from your supply chain, mm. uh, right? So uh, I have a water bottle uh, and the emissions that were created as part of the water bottle that became part of uh, are, are in my supplier network because I bought the Water bottle. Well, those are scope three emissions. There, um, it, it's a it's a 
it's a hard to understand concept, but it tries to help you optimize your own supply chain footprint. That's a good that's a good overview though for for people. Um, and, and coming back to your earlier point, um, uh, you know, I, I've been in in building and, and investing in climate tech long enough where <clears throat> um, I, I agree in that you know the transition away from oil and gas is is going to take a long time, and it and it should. Um, obviously, the the quicker the better, but um, a lot of people don't realize that you know the whole. Uh, you know, plastics industry, right? It, all polymers really come from petroleum-based uh, uh, inputs, um, and then and and also, you know, they're they're finding kind of more, um, you know, there there's more coming out in terms of you know some of the supply chain around electric vehicles and cobalt in the in the Congo and and things like that. So, um, you know, obviously faster is better, but it has to be done in a in a responsible way. Correct. You, you know, you're wearing a, a Patagonia jacket. And uh, one of the interesting things that reminds me of Patagonia, um, not not to hang out them to dry in this instance, but I remember they, uh, 10 years ago, they developed a, a sweater made of bottles. Remember re- this, this, and it said, this jacket is made of um, recycled plastic bottles. And I'm like, that's awesome. I want one. This is incredible. But as you look into what happens, and it's, it's not just Patagonia that did this, but we've incorporated plastics into our clothing. And then through the wash cycle, these plastics are degrading, right? Um, and so now we're getting microplastics into the water uh, and in, into our bloodstream as a result of ingesting them. They're going into our food supply. You can find them in fish. Um, and so, um, I think that's one of the examples here that you know we're, I, don't, I don't want to see happen with oil and gas. Like we have a great step forward. Somebody figures out how to take plastic bottles and create a sweater out of them, and everyone's like, "This is great." Uh, and then you find out that there's a lot of downside risk because that sweater then breaks down into these microplastics, which are unmanageable. Um, and now we have trillions of these particles floating around our waters uh, and breathing them in in some cases. So. How do we avoid that problem as we look to decarbonize? That's that's what keeps me up at night in many ways. It's not that like we can't decarbonize. It's doing it smart and sustainably, uh, ensuring that you know a certain special interest or that's you know this certain special interest or that special interest um, don't push us in the direction that we just decarbonize so fast that we put ourselves in a you know another problem. You pointed out nickel and cobalt and the mining and and you can then even get into like slavery and, and challenges there. So. Um, we want to be really smart about how we do this. And I think making sure we hear all voices um, at the table, making sure we consider strategies, making sure we're um, thinking about second order and, and tertiary effects to what decarbonization means. Um, I'll give you a real example there. Ammonia. Um, ammonia sounds great as a potential future fuel for ships, um, but um, uh, if it leaks out, it'll kill the crew. So, And it's highly uh, toxic. So um, ammonia then needs, it's, it's only interesting if it can be made green. So then, well, how do you make green ammonia? Well, you need a, a green emission source to begin with, or you can get it from an algae. Um, so you got to look into um, what the, the risks of our transition might be, and I, I think manage that appropriately. Right. I, I mean, I think <clears throat> the headline here is that um, th- there's complexity here that, that needs to be understood, and, and that's why... Um, you know, I get nervous sometimes when I, I see new people who want to get into climate tech and they're so idealistic that they just kind of gloss over some of these 
these uh, complexities. Um, you talked a little bit earlier about <clears throat> um, uh, you know, having an impact now that's going to affect future generations. Um, and you know, a big part of what we do here and is is kind of you know helping people who are you know younger, earlier in the career and whatnot. Um, what advice would you give to a young person? You know, maybe they're passionate about climate. You know, trying to figure out how, you know how to make an impact with their life. Like, what kind of advice you know would you wish you had heard when you were younger? And and the kinds of advice you give to to young folks early in their career. You know, um, I, I'd say do something that matters, not necessarily that you love. Um, I find that if you do something you love, you might end up um, considering what you love work and then not loving it so much anymore. And I don't know that that's the best advice, um, but doing something that matters, uh, that has an impact. Um, climate is one of many things that matter. Um, it's not the only thing that matters. So there's lots of ways to make an impact. Um, you know, kind of find your guiding light there um, and try you're young, go try. Uh, it's, it's easier than ever to go try. Um, if you, uh, especially in climate, um, so I think you, you sort of just touched on that. There's, like, there's this idealistic approach to climate, and then there's a very practical approach to climate. Figure out kind of what side of the coin you approach it with. Um, it, if you're looking to try, feel like you can step out um, into something more practical um, as opposed to more idealistic, which may open up more opportunities for you also to drive change in a meaningful way. Um, so I guess, you know, under the hood there, that's be open, be experimental, go try, um, find something that matters, but not necessarily something you love, um, and, and experiment. I guess it's sort of how you found a startup too, right? Uh, be willing to, to try and fail and see what works and um, have, a, have a North Star that you're after, but don't be hooked on the one way to get there. Great advice. Um, Jacob, this has been a pleasure. Um, if there are folks uh, who are watching here and they want to get in touch with you, follow you, um, follow what's happening with SailPlan, what's the best way for them to do that? SailPlan.com. Uh, follow us on LinkedIn. We are pretty active on LinkedIn. Uh, and uh, if anyone wants to get in touch, send me an email, jacob at SailPlan.com. I'd love to hear from you. Love to talk. Excellent. Jacob, thank you so much for being here. Um, You've wildly exceeded my expectations for this podcast. Well, so. you must have had low expectations. <laughs> Thanks, Joe. Thanks again, man. All right. All right.